This morning, I'd like to direct your attention to Luke 17. We'll arrive there in the scriptures after I give a few words of introduction to the passage. Because it's a gospel reading, I will invite you to stand when we get to that point. So you'll be ready for that. Don't get too comfortable in your chairs yet because I'm going to mess up your rest for a few moments at that point. Uh, I would make one other just quick reminder. The last installment in our fall series of Scripture and Prayer Saturdays is December 5th. And if you want to be involved in that Zoom session, one part Zoom, one part thing you do at home, you need to send an email to the church office so you can get the invite. So if you're interested in that, uh, send us an invite. You'll find the details on the church calendar. Most of the time, the bridge between our world and the world of the Bible is very long, fraught with obstacles and pitfalls for understanding. It's so hard to understand the differences between our cultures, the differences between our knowledge bases, the differences between our economies, the differences between the way we look at the world and the things we value. But, but there are times when the distance between those two worlds begins to shrink, and our current experiences make it a little easier to understand what the stories of the Bible mean. And I think today, in this particular passage, this is one of those days. We are more familiar with isolation than we have ever been before. We understand the threat of an unknown and barely understood disease in ways we never have in the past. More of us have lost jobs, had income cut, have worried about losing jobs, or have worried about having to make the decisions to let people go than we've had to do in recent memory. For most of us, perhaps with the exception of some of our senior citizens, we haven't really had to contend with loneliness all that much before. We've had the ability to hold our families close. But times have changed, and we understand much more what it means to be isolated, separated, lonely, at risk, and lost. We understand what it means to be quarantined, sick, and alone. We've watched family members die alone in hospitals without the ability to get to them. Tragedies. So today, when we're asked to understand the life of ten lepers, we know a bit more about their experiences than we did a year ago. A diagnosis of leprosy 2,000 years ago meant immediate exclusion from the society. Lepers were thought highly contagious, so they were sent into permanent quarantine. Lepers gathered in colonies outside the city limits, no jobs available, relying on gifts of compassion for their food, separated from family, the lost comfort of spouses and children and grandchildren, Essentially, they lived with strangers, not unlike people in COVID wards and hospitals. Not sure if their disease was terminal, slow, debilitating, not knowing the progress, the progression of the disease they were experiencing. Not permitted human touch, except assumedly from other lepers. They were pariahs, socially outcast, required to announce their disease at every encounter. That's what we're being asked to imagine about these 10 men who are going to confront Jesus 
in Luke 17, 11 to 19. This is the word of the Lord. Would you rise for the reading of the gospel? Luke 17, 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you whole. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is in a place of opportunity. He's in the borderlands between Samaria and Galilee. Anything can happen there. You might run into anyone. Not sure who you might encounter. It's the long way around. So it's okay to think that Jesus places himself here intentionally. Outside, outside of the town, as he's approaching a town on the way in, it's a moment of destiny. Ten men meet Jesus. Do they know he's coming? Or is Jesus in a place where these kinds of opportunities present themselves? Jesus and the lepers meet. Pity is the request. We don't know from the story what the lepers know or what they believe about Jesus. They simply get instructions from Jesus, the teacher, and they obey their instructions. Don't miss the point that Jesus has the power to give instructions. These particular men decide to obey. We're not completely sure whether their obedience is because they believe that Jesus can make a difference in their life or they are just so desperate for anything, they'll do anything they can to get out of this miserable situation they're in. But in the process of obedience, all ten are healed. It was in their going that the healing came. Actions must follow your belief. You must demonstrate your belief, apparently. Only one comes back. He acknowledges the source of his healing. Did the others not figure it out? Were the others overcome by their healing, anxious to see what the priests were going to say? Were the others so excited to see their family? Were the others blinded by their good fortune? Or in the process of obeying Jesus' words to go to the priest, did they decide to honor his request fully before the thought of returning even ended their minds? We don't know. Was the unexpected escape from utter abandonment and destruction just simply destabilizing to them? Did they have jobs to return to or families that would believe them or, or wives that were still available to them? We're asked to understand the chaos of their lives and the complexity of their actions. And that isn't an easy thing to do. 
I mean, who can blame them for forgetting to give God glory in circumstances like these? They'd lost everything. They were hopeless. They had no homes, no jobs, no future. And then all of a sudden, everything is possible again. Talk about a monstrous roller coaster ride. I mean, this classifies as one of those near-death experiences that are terribly unsettling and change your perspective on everything. And it's interesting, in the middle of such a huge transition, Jesus still expected them to give God glory for their healing. Jesus has an expectation. I mean, let that idea sink in for a moment. Jesus had an expectation. Jesus still has an expectation. Jesus still has an expectation of us. So I'm wondering, why does Luke record this event? Is it just to remind us to be thankful and to give God glory? I mean, those aren't bad ideas, good ideas actually, but I'm convinced there's more going on in this story. I mean, Luke has tons of stories to choose from. He only chooses a select few of them, and he's making a point with the stories he's choosing. It may be that one of the things Luke is saying is that the Jews were so saturated with the blessings of God that they no longer even recognize them when they see them. They just expect the blessings of God, as if God were obligated to make their lives easy. No reason to be thankful when you're simply getting what's due to you. But the man who returns to give thanks, the the lone Samaritan, the outcast, he understands the gift he's received and understands the need to acknowledge it. From the place of prejudice, he understands what has been given, and so he returns to give God glory. Perhaps there's a word play going on here, the difference between the word for healing and the word for cleanse in this passage. All ten are healed, but only one is made whole or completely cleansed. And the act of returning to praise God results in salvation for the Samaritan, the recreation of the Samaritan, while the other nine are just simply healed. I hate to say simply healed because healing isn't simple, but it's less than all of what God hoped for these ten men. He hoped for more. If you've ever been around a new Christian, You've seen the joy in their lives, the gratitude to God for what God has done in their lives. Salvation, new life in Christ fuels joy. But often in the press of life, we forget that joy. We forget the price by which we were purchased. We forget that we've been richly blessed. We forget that the offer of salvation, of a second chance at life, is a gift to us and that we still don't deserve it. Even after we've spent 50 years as a Christian serving God, we still don't deserve it. And so sometimes our Christian hearts harden and, well, we don't get the answers we want or the ravages of age take a toll on our body or our loved ones don't get well and we forget that God still deserves glory and praise and honor. We forget that our lives have been blessed beyond measure. 
We forget that God is the source of all the good that we know. We forget and others come in and praise God in our place. I think these are the important points of the passage. There are two stories here. One is healing and one is salvation. All are healed, one is saved. Somehow, gratitude is linked to the salvation. Gratitude for salvation is important here. People who really know the saving grace of God are bound to be the most grateful people on the planet. And this humble gratitude needs to express itself in actions, actions of obedience and compassion, actions that matter in terms of the mission of the kingdom of God. You know, we've heard a story like this before. If you travel back to the Old Testament and recall the story of Naaman, the general, and Elisha, the prophet, found in 2 Kings 5. I mean, Naaman is the general of the armies of Aram, a rival of Israel. He has leprosy. He comes to Elisha for healing. Elisha tells him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman thinks, wash in the muddy Jordan? Why would I do that? That would be humiliating. I'm not going to humiliate myself by doing that. There are plenty of rivers back home that are clean. I can wash in any of those seven times, and I'm sure the results will be the same. And besides, he keeps thinking, Elisha didn't even bother coming out of his house to say anything to me. I mean, he at least could have come out and waved his hands around and mumbled a few words. It's all right there in the passage. This is just what Naaman's thinking. Like hocus pocus or something. I mean, doesn't it even Elisha take me seriously about all of this? Naaman is disobedient and arrogant, and as long as he is, he's not healed. And then one of his humble servants walks up to him and says, you know, if the prophet had asked you to do some great deed, wouldn't you have done it? But all, all he asked was, go and watch. Why not do that? And Naaman thinks about what his humble servant has to say. And Naaman realizes his humble servant is correct. And so Naaman humbles himself, goes down to the muddy Jordan, washes himself seven times, and in the going into the water, he's healed. He's, he's healed. And so he consequently expresses his gratitude. It seems to me that expressing gratitude is a step beyond recognizing that we've been blessed. And so I wonder... How do you express gratitude? I can't believe that all the men who were healed weren't grateful. But how they expressed their thanksgiving to God mattered to Jesus. There's something about our willingness to tell the story of what Jesus has done in our lives, to give God glory as an expression of our gratitude that's really important here, that matters to Jesus. We've already done, over the last few weeks, the exercise of identifying our blessings, both the blessings with which we've been enriched and the opportunities that we've had to serve others. We've, we appreciate the gifts of God. But the next step, the next question is, how will you express the gratitude? What action will you take? How will we give glory to God? Is singing songs in church adequate thanksgiving 
for the blessings that you've received or is more required? Are we like Israel, so saturated with the blessings of God that we no longer appreciate them or even recognize them? There is, there is an unsettling prophetic quality to this story of these ten lepers. We know what's going to happen in Judaism and in the world in the next short months and years that follow this event. The outsiders will become the insiders and the insiders will become the outsiders because the Jews to whom Jesus is sent will reject the mission of the Messiah and the person of the Messiah and the Gentiles will be included. Jews will miss out on the promise that is available to them but that they do not seek. The lack of humility that characterized the leaders of the Jewish nation in the day of Christ prohibited them from accepting their Messiah when he arrived. And I wonder as I consider this swapping, this displacement of the ungrateful, if the same kind of thing could happen to us. Will the church of Jesus Christ in this day fall victim to ingratitude to the extent that we will waste away while a new remnant elsewhere rises up to give glory to God in our place? That's the question that haunts me. We are so self-satisfied, so independent, that we just don't feel the need to rely on God, and consequently we don't feel the need to be grateful to God. And I mean, after all, we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, didn't we? Or so some think. I think unless we are humbly giving God praise, we are not living to his glory. And we are no longer pointing the lost and broken to him. And all of that makes us essentially useless to the kingdom of God. Like salt that's lost its saltiness. No longer good except for road gravel. How will we express gratitude? What action will we take? How will we give glory to God, recognizing his significant and substantial and ongoing gifts to us day after day, year after year, generation upon generation? I'd ask you to ponder those questions this week. How will you give Glory to God. How will you say thank you to God? How will you move your feelings of gratitude into expressions of gratitude which bring glory to God? And I would like to encourage us on that journey to give glory to God by inviting you to sing a hymn with me this morning. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And please do not use your inside library voice when you sing this hymn. Let's use your outdoor playground voice when you sing this or yelling at the kids to come home for dinner voice. Okay? Would you stand with me as we sing? To God be the glory
Now may God equip you with every good thing that you need to do his will so that he might receive glory from your lives this day and every day. Go in the joy of the Lord. Amen.